Hello and welcome to the Stuck Brain Podcast. All things mental health with a different approach. We look at the research, but we also discuss real life experience. Welcome back to another episode of the Stuck Brain Podcast. I am your host, Eric Osterland, and today we have a guest. Her name is Dr. Hannah Hamlin. She is a physician with type 1 diabetes who has a practice in Texas and wrote a workbook on mindset for people with type 1 diabetes. The focus of this episode is chronic disease and mental health and how to cope with it. If you want to learn more about Dr. Hannah Hamlin, please visit her at her website, which is drhannahhamlin.com. During this episode, Dr. Hannah Hamlin had an issue with her diabetic monitoring equipment, and both of us decided to leave it in because it illustrates the problems with chronic disease that most of us don't understand. Okay, I'll see you in the episode. Welcome back to the Stuck Brain Podcast. I have a great guest for you today. Her name is Dr. Hannah Hamlin. And she is a specialist. So I specialize in functional medicine. And really, I'm, my base training is as a general practitioner. But I decided that I really wanted to learn more about the way that lifestyle, nutrition, sleep, kind of the, those things impact our life. So not only how to not have disease, but how to create optimal health. And so I did additional training through the Institute of Functional Medicine. And they have their flagship clinic at the Cleveland Clinic. And so the models are really looking at systems instead of singular organs. So it just takes a different approach on lifestyle and how to optimize health. I love that. I love that. And looking at the whole picture instead of one specific thing that we tend to do in, in medicine. Yeah. How did you become a doctor? What was your journey like? What did that look like? I started my medical journey really wanting to learn more about myself as a patient. And so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a teenager. And I grew up going to lots of different specialists with a lot of questions on how to be healthy. And I had some good doctors. I was really able to find kind of baseline not being sick, but I really wasn't able to get the answers to the questions I had about how to feel good in my body. And so I ended up then studying nutrition at Texas A&M for my undergraduate degree and really learning that there's a lot of great research out there that answered my questions that I had. And one of the tools that we were taught was how to critically evaluate medical literature and kind of take takeaway points and implement them into a treatment plan you know, for improvement. And so I started learning that there was so much that we had knowledge about that there was this gap between what we knew and what the kind of average patient was able to understand. And so I really came into medicine and, and chose to go to medical school with that idea in mind, really wanting to empower the patient. And partially, Eric, just to be honest, was trying to figure out my own health, my, my medical journey and kind of my own health story was evolving through college and medical school. And I, I didn't really feel, feel healthy until kind of after I finished medical school. And so it did, it did answer a lot of my questions personally too, which I think was helpful because understanding that patient experience side absolutely, I think makes me show up a little bit different than my peers, just because I remember those hard days where I was nervous to go talk to the doctor, didn't want to talk about certain things. And and, and I think not getting questions answered can be challenging. Yeah. And, and I love that you said that. I think a lot of us, like me, the reason why I'm in mental health is because I've had my own mental health struggles, my own anxiety and depression that I had to work through. Can you tell me more 
about that journey. How was it growing up with type 1 diabetes and, and the struggles with it? Yeah, you know, it was it was hard. And I think that that's kind of a, a common response I get from people when I tell them I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a teenager. They'll say, you know, like, I'm sorry. I think kind of most people understand that it, it's a challenging thing to, to work with. But really, you know, why it was hard is usually not what people can understand kind of right out of the gate. And and the reason it was so challenging, I mean, I, I had to take up to 10 insulin injections a day. I was breaking my finger very often. When I was first diagnosed, that's kind of where our diabetes technology was. And so it was taking a lot of challenging physical tasks. But the hardest part was the, the mental part was after my diagnosis, really making peace with the fact that I was going to have a chronic disease for the rest of my life, as far as we knew, because we didn't have a cure at that time and we still don't. And making peace with the fact, I mean, as a teenager, that I was very different than my peers all of a sudden. And really trying to understand what did that mean for me and my future. And I had a lot of questions, a lot of unknowns about, can I have a family? Can I go to college? Will I be, am I going to die early? You know, all these things that I just didn't understand. And I was frankly too afraid to ask because it was so scary at the time. And so really kind of going through high school with type 1 diabetes, I was able to get grasps on it. But I, but I think that type 1 diabetes, absolutely, when I talk to my story, my friends with type 1 diabetes, patients that I know, it all goes back to that. It's that struggle with the mental aspect of what does this mean for me? And I really had to learn to make peace with it. I had to make peace with my diagnosis. I had to find good things that diabetes has brought into my life and, you know, it, really remind myself of those. And and I had to understand that I was letting myself feel broken because of it. And then I had to kind of walk back from that and say, okay, this doesn't make me broken. It just makes me different. And so a lot of people, they run their kind of metabolisms automatically. And so if you think about it like a car, you know, I'm just driving my metabolism in manual because I don't make insulin anymore. And so that's, it's a little bit different, but when you look at that, it's, oh, it's different. It's not broken. And it was a long journey of getting to that place. I think I, I didn't even realize that I felt that in the back of my mind. And I was doing all these other things and like kind of overcompensating for the fact that I felt broken. Yeah. What's interesting that I've learned now in my kind of adult life that I feel happy and healthy and I'm in a, you know, a good place with my health is I realize a lot of the, the mental struggles that I had with making peace with having type 1 diabetes in my life actually started before diabetes my diagnosis of diabetes and my diagnosis of diabetes kind of just made them, brought them to light, if that makes sense. So I think I, I definitely had a lot of problems with confidence before. I was really shy. I had trouble making friends, you know, and then I got this diabetes diagnosis and I could blame diabetes for all of those things all of a sudden. And so I spent a long time blaming diabetes for just thought patterns that weren't serving me that were there before. And so I think it's really interesting. And I think that's kind of true for a lot of chronic disease diagnoses is that sometimes the mental struggles that come from it aren't true to the disease. They're just, it, it, it amplifies who you already are and the challenges you already have in your mindset. So I don't know if that's true for everybody, but I thought that was a really interesting kind of thing to discover is that, that a lot of this is, is me. And I, I blame diabetes for a long time. That is so interesting. I mean, I love the analogy of that you're just in manual with the car right? You're different, not broken. I, I think that's huge because I have a lot of clients that do reach out to me. They're having mental health issues. And when we start to talk about it, they do sometimes have a underlining chronic condition. And so the 
the idea of saying that it's not that you're broken, it's just a different system and kind of having some self forgiveness or compassion, I guess is a better word around it. What, what would you tell a client? Like what would be their first step if they're having a hard time recognizing that they have a chronic illness and recognizing the mental health issues that are coming along with it? Where would you start? Like, what would be your first advice to tell them? I love this question. And I'm going to, really, I had some great physicians teach me this, so it, it doesn't come intrinsic. But I think the, the best thing to say in that setting in the beginning is to clear up any lingering thoughts that it's your fault. So I think, I think the right thing to start with is, is understanding that it's not your fault for where you are. And if you have a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes or type 1 diabetes or any chronic condition, it's really tempting to blame ourselves. And I think absolutely we're responsible for taking care of our health. We're responsible for needing to learn how to, to do things to you know manage our lab work and, and feel good. But we, it's human nature when we hear catastrophic news, something really challenging to do a lot of internal blame. And I think the more time you sit in the space of blaming yourself for it, it shuts you down for being able to take actionable steps on moving forward and moving through it. And so I think that starting with, it's not your fault where you are. You know, this happened. It's okay. We can move forward from it. But but if we consistently blame ourselves, it's that self-sabotage that, that makes it harder to, to take action in a direction that feels better. And that makes sense because then we kind of get stuck in that self-narrative, I did this. I, I have that with a couple of clients that have had cancer and maybe they smoked when they were a young kid or something. And now they're, they're having that self blame. I did this to myself. And, and I think what you said is so true. It does no good to really blame themselves over and over. Cause you're not going to be able to take the steps to get treatment and get better. So kind of to recognize that it's not my fault. It's just the way this went and I need to kind of move through it and start to process it differently. Well, yeah. And, and it's, I think that's a great example, Eric, because it is even harder when you have a diagnosis that is correlated with an action from your past that increases risk. You know, that's even harder because you can really let that data kind of tell you how yeah. to interpret it and tell you how to think. And I think that we're all, I mean, we're all given different cards for many different reasons. I mean, just the way that our childhoods play out to genetics, to, you know, different choices that we make. And, and usually, any chronic disease diagnosis or even a cancer diagnosis isn't because of one thing. It's usually layers of things, you know? And so there are plenty of people that smoked their lifetime and didn't get cancer, you know? And so I think that it's easy to blame ourselves for an action like smoking with this lung cancer example, which is great. But, but I think that really, you know, there's no doubt that each, I feel like each step of the way you were probably doing the best you could with what you had, you know? And, and that's, that's what we have to make peace with is that, Maybe we could have changed our habits and changed our risk, but here in the now, this is what we know and this is what we can do. And if we put blame on our past and we put blame on who we were before and what we did before, it's self-destructive. What organization do you, would you recommend reaching out to for help? Do you have any organizations off the top of your head or any resources that you'd recommend? I think... It would depend really on within kind of different chronic chronic disease subsets. There are different associations with resources for specific subsets. I think in general, though, having space to learn to make peace with the diagnosis or or with the current symptoms of a chronic disease, that would be best done with cognitive behavioral therapy as a first step. And so I think really finding someone who can help you work through the mindset piece of it 
you know, is just as important as having someone who can help you work through the physical pieces like the lab numbers and such. And so, so if, if it were somebody who was struggling with this, I would start with therapy. I think that that's an ab- absolutely a strong place to start. We've got lots of data to suggest that it's helpful, but really creating space where you're taking time and intention to work on shifting kind of how you're looking at it. What do you feel about group therapy? I would think finding people that are going through similar struggles would definitely help with this. Yeah, absolutely. I had a, um, during my diagnosis time, I had a, I'm sorry about that. Maybe I'm going to start over so you can cut that out. Let me turn it off here. It's okay. What was um, that? It's a, it was my blood glucose alarm and it overrides my silence, but today it has been inaccurate. So it's, it was a false alarm. Um, oh. it's, yeah, sometimes it'll, it'll beep if I go too low or too high, but this one, it, for some reason, the sensor isn't picking up right. So it did this earlier on a call where it, it thinks I'm really low and it, I'm fine right now. So. You know, what's so interesting is this plays into everything that we're just <laughs> right. talking about. Here we are. Deal with this sensor, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. And it's, it, it's funny. You're, you're so right because it is that. That's a chronic piece of this is, you know, I take diabetes wherever I go. You know, it comes on vacation and to Zoom calls and it's always kind of in the back of my mind, which makes me different. You know, it's it's just a different set of things to to balance. So, yeah, I think it would also make you stronger, too, to a certain extent. You know, what doesn't kill us kind of makes us a little bit stronger having to deal with this stuff, having to be vulnerable, um, you know, not being like perfect per se, I think it would make us stronger as an individual too. You know, I, I love that you said that because I, I absolutely choose to believe that it makes me stronger because that makes me feel good. And that's a, a thought process that I've chosen for myself through my journey of healing from the, the mental piece of this. But I think because a diagnosis highlights some of those challenges that you have about yourself, it really gives you a reason to need to work through them. But also chronic disease, I mean, is not something that we can just quit. You know, it's always there. And so I feel like certainly in my younger years and still often want to be is like a, it's easy to, to give up on something when it gets hard. And I was the first to like quit sports and stuff when I was younger. When they got too hard, I didn't like, you know, pushing myself. But diabetes was the one thing that I couldn't quit. And man, if I could have, I absolutely would have so many times, you know, because it's, it's just monotonous. But I think it has, it's created a sense of like resiliency and diligence. And so when I was doing other hard things, like going through medical school and studying for these crazy big exams, it gave me a sense of like, oh, I can do this. You know, I can do hard things. And that's really cool. I accredit diabetes to so many of the successes and, and positive things that have come into my life because it just gave me a tool set that, that I really had to sharpen in order to, to make it work. Is there any mentors out there, any people that you ever looked up to that had type 1 diabetes or anything like that? Yes, definitely. And they have absolutely shaped my life. The first one was when I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, I went through a kind of a phase for about six months where I really just shut down about it. I wasn't able to talk about it with any of my peers. I I remember really, you know, just being so stressed when my mom had to give my teacher letters so my teacher would know. I really tried to keep it hidden because I was so afraid. And my parents sent me to a camp for children with type 1 diabetes so that I would be around other people that I felt like I could talk about it with. And of course, I didn't want to go. They really, you know, really uh, forced me to go. And it's now become one of my favorite places in the world. But there is a physician that runs that camp, Dr. Stephen Ponder, who is a, a pediatric endocrinologist who has type 1 diabetes. And he was able to get in front of us and talk. And he's now a grandfather and, you know, lives this great life. And 
it was like there could have been a million PowerPoints or teachings in the world, but to see him be himself, you know, and live in his expression of who he is and be a grandfather and talk about those things and just to say like, oh, he if he can have a happy life, I can do it too, you know? And so that was kind of the first piece that really unlocked, you know, a lot of those limiting beliefs that I had was just by seeing other examples. And then when I was, and, and that camp is amazing and I still go back and, and work there every summer because it's become such a community for me. And I think that that kind of loops us back to your question I got distracted on about group therapy is that that was the biggest shift in my my understanding of how to feel good with chronic disease was meeting other people who were doing it too and either like, you know, working through it together or meeting people who are a few steps ahead of me and learning from them. That was absolutely what taught me the most. And then the other kind of big mentor in my life was Nicole Johnson, who is a, she was Miss America in 1990. And she ran a kind of a group for young adults with type 1 diabetes. And I went to a couple of conferences with her and she had a daughter. And I remember the first time I met her, seeing her, you know, her family and thinking like, oh, I can have a family with type 1 diabetes. Like that's how I found out was meeting someone else. It was so, and I was in college, you know, that's kind of late to understand that. And so it was really shifting. And she was like running this program and, you know, doing these whole conferences and she had all these successes. And when she was Miss America, she wore her insulin pump with her bikini on stage. And I was like, oh, I can be confident with this if she can, you know. And so it really was just it was really beautiful. So I, I really accredit both of them to so much of who I am today. That is so nice to see somebody else doing it ahead of you and being able to model positive behavior around it. Yeah. And then you're going to take that and you're going to show younger kids and teach them and model model positive behavior around it as well. Yeah, I mean that's that's the goal and I think it's it's any chronic disease, type 1 diabetes or or any other, it's a really hard do thing to do on your own, you know, and and I think if you can have a sense of camaraderie of that I'm not alone in this, it it's healing in itself. So Absolutely. That's, I think there are a lot of people out there that don't know anybody else with type 1 diabetes. And if I can create a space where they can meet someone and talk to someone and cause even a, a small portion of the shifts that, that I got from other people, that would be, you know, I think the most fulfilling thing for me in my career. A nice thing, too, is also technology is really picking up in this in this realm. Am I correct? Yes. Like now we have the external monitors and all that stuff so we can have even a better quality of life around it. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah. It's really, really exciting how many changes I've seen over the last 17 years since I was diagnosed. And, and right now we're getting closer and closer to having just more accurate and supportive tools. So now most people are wearing these glucose sensors that kind of go into their, their skin and go to an app on their phone or another device and kind of give them a graph of their blood glucose just wonderful oh. for making decisions because if you're wondering kind of what to do next with your blood glucose level, if you can see how it's trending, if it's moving up or moving down, gives you a lot more data to make an actionable step with than if you just get that one number. And I remember the first time I started using one years ago, they had these alarms for when you go out, what you just heard, that'll wake you up at night. And so it was the first time, Eric, for years and years that I didn't have to wake up in the middle of the night to test my blood sugar. And it was like the biggest gift to be able to sleep through the night, it was awesome. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something I would have just taken for granted. Well, and it's, it's not something you think about, you know, so th they're improving quality of life. And we've got other systems, different insulin pumps with algorithms to kind of manage 
insulin dosing. And so I do think it is getting easier. We're, we're seeing better outcomes and people using these technologies. And it, it's nice to know that we live in a world where there are so many groups of people working on these things. You know, it's, it's, I feel like it's, it's a very supported community. That is so great. Now, is there any online communities that you can join around this or anything like that to share your story? If, if any listeners out there are going through this, is there anywhere that they can get up and go? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of online communities and I really encourage if you don't know someone in your immediate environment with a chronic disease that you have to, to reach out for support online because there are so many now Zoom support groups across the country for different types of chronic diseases. For type 1 diabetes specifically, there are many places you can kind of go to find groups. Colleges now, most large college campuses actually have a group for type 1 diabetes, so that's a great place to go local. But online, there is an organization called Beyond Type 1, and they have resources for different local support groups or or Zoom support groups. So there's a, a lot of pieces online. I would say, too, with that, I think that community is really important, but Often on some of those kind of Facebook groups that are out there that are not monitored, there are a lot of really, it can be a place where people go to not only talk about their successes, but their their biggest challenges. And I find that often people who are really struggling gravitate to sharing their challenges more naturally as we would. But if you're new to those things, you can read a lot of challenging stories and it can seem like living with the disease is more doomsday than it actually is because you get kind of this skewed perspective. So I think that's an important thing with support groups is just understand that it's not a full representative picture of what life looks like. It's just kind of where people's struggles come up. And so it it can be misleading if it's your first time entering something like that. I'm so glad you said that because sometimes Facebook and these things, you're exactly right, can fall into it like an echo chamber and you know, let's face it, when people want to leave like reviews or anything there, we usually focus on the negative. And so I can see how some of those groups that are unmonitored, it, it just is all about the negative. And then if you're coming into that as your first time, yeah, it would seem like doomsday or everything's going to the worst case scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's, yeah. it's good to talk about those things. I think it's just important to understand that it doesn't have to be that way or it isn't always. What's the relationship between mental health and chronic illnesses and and what does that look like? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think that it's interesting because we absolutely do see increased chronic disease diagnosis with people who have mental health disorders, but we also see increased mental health disorders in people with chronic disease diagnosis. So the chicken or the egg question there is is a strong one. And I think we've got data to suggest kind of in both both directions. But some of my, my favorite um, kind of studies that, that really took a look at this are called the Adverse Childhood Event Studies. And essentially what they did is they, they looked at, through questionnaires, adults that had had more challenging childhood events. So that would be things like abuse, trauma, neglect. And then they looked at the types of diseases or the types of kind of health profiles that those adults were having. And they found a very clear correlation that people with increased adverse childhood events absolutely had increased chronic diseases, and not just mental health diseases, but things like metabolic disorders, cardiovascular disorders. And some of the most interesting pieces that I kind of pulled out of reading those is that there's certain types of childhood trauma that are related to certain types of adult physical diagnoses. And that sounds really doomsday. And, And when I first thought about this, I thought, gosh, like, 
these kids had a hard time in childhood and now they're doomed to have a increased risk of having a harder health struggle in adulthood. Like that doesn't seem fair. And, and it was really kind of disempowering when I first read it. But there are some details that they did in, in later parts of the study that really kind of flipped the switch on that. And, and what they found is that when people had adverse childhood experiences, but at some point during later in childhood or early adulthood, they leaned in to some type of support, whether it be therapy or even medication for, for some of the stressors, their risk, of the, the increased risk of, of adulthood, chronic disease diagnoses decreased back to baseline. And so that's a, that's a really empowering wow. statistic. And, and it was baseline. It was a little bit kind of more complex than that, but that's a general summary. And it tells us that, that there are things that we can do. You know, it really puts the power back in our hand. It, it kind of takes off that victim mindset layer that we would get if we just looked at that kind of increased risk, you know, statistic. And, and I think it's, it's really powerful, one, because it gives us the option to say, hey, working through these, this mental health struggles that I'm having is absolutely worth doing for a quality of life perspective, but also a physical health perspective. But also it tells us that it's really important that we're having these conversations with our patients. You know, it, it tells us that it's really important that we're catching these things ideally sooner rather than later, you know, and that we're, we're discussing these things and addressing them is worthwhile and it does make a difference. And that's really empowering. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, catch these as early as possible. Now that we know there's a correlation, if we can start screening children and young adults for adverse childhood events, ACEs, ahead of time, then we can start putting some interventions, like you said, to kind of bring it back to baseline. And that is very empowering. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's amazing to me because I, I use that particular study, the ACEs questionnaire is something that you can use in your practice if you're in, in healthcare and, and listening to this. It, it's a tool you can find online. But I've been using it in, in my practice. And one of the things that I see is that there are many adults that have high ACE levels or high adverse childhood experiences that they experienced growing up. And they have not, it, it's never been addressed or discussed. And here they are, you know, later in life kind of struggling through things. And I think that it's so important to look at that, you know, and really have those conversations. And for some people, it's their choice not to, and that's absolutely fine. But I think that it's worth offering and, and teaching. And, and it goes back to maybe kind of what I talked about my mission in medicine is that there's some really cool data out there that we can apply to our lives to have better outcomes and have a better quality of life. And it's just about learning that sometimes that can help us kind of with the implementation of something that really will move the needle on how we feel. And I think as a society, we're starting to talk about it more. And I think we're starting to talk about it sooner than later. I, I mean, I know the older generations, like my parents and my parents' parents, they never talked about anything, yeah. right? They never talked if they were sad or upset or angry. It was just hold it in and deal with it. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And now that's starting to change. I think it is. I, I really see that it is not just in kind of societal culture, but also in medicine too. And, and I think to that point, you know, what's really interesting, Eric, is that that idea of kind of, I think for the, the generation behind us, and this is absolutely an oversimplification, but there, there was a, a strong thought process that going to therapy made you broken, you know? Like, oh, if you're, you, you go to therapy, yeah. if you're broken, but you're fine if you don't have to go. And so there's a huge stigma about therapy that is still, you know, pervasive in, in some kind of family lines and some cultures. But I think that it goes back to that, how I felt with my physical type one diabetes diagnosis was I felt like that made me broken. 
And I think for a lot of people, they think if they go to therapy, they're deciding that they're broken, you know? And so that's, that's the hesitation for wanting to go. And I think it's quite the opposite. And, and now I think what's fun in the optimal health community is so many people who are in great health with great mental health, they go to therapy anyway, just to optimize. You know, it's kind of fun that we're, we're using it on the other end because it absolutely works that way. And, and I think that it, it is nice to see that shift. But, but it's interesting that, that it's almost that decision of the brokenness that, that we talked about earlier. I'm glad you said that because we do see that stigma you know, it's used in language, oh, you need a therapist, meaning, oh, you're broken. They'll say that in movies and TV shows and stuff like that. And then, but then when you look at it, you're exactly right. Now there's celebrities that are saying, yes, I go to a therapist, or some people are using coaches, which is still a form of help, but it doesn't have that negative stereotype to it. And I mean, all therapy is, is just going to somebody to talk to. I mean, it shouldn't be, it's so funny because it shouldn't be stigmatized. It's just basically saying, yeah, I want to talk to somebody about this stuff. That's all it's saying. Yeah. Instead of uh, dealing with it all in my mind, I'm just going to go to a third party and, and run some stuff by them. And yet, but as a society, we see that as broken and you can't do that. That reminds me of the show. This is a total tangent of The Sopranos where Tony Soprano is going to, you know, he's the gangster guy and he's going to go to therapy and he can't let anybody know because then they'll, like you said, they'll think he's broken mm-hmm. and weak. When in reality, that's not, that's not the case at all. You're actually a stronger person when we reach out and we talk to people about our, our feelings and yeah, thoughts. I think so. And it, it makes sense to me when you look at it kind of in this current medical world that we live in, you know, if you, if you have a tummy ache, you go to the gastroenterologist. If you have a heart problem, you go to, or, you know, a heart challenge, you go to the cardiologist. And I think that if you want to learn to optimize your emotions or your thought process around something that is currently a struggle for you, you go to the people who are really great at teaching you how to do that, you know, and you learn from them. And it makes sense. You know, if you want to, you know, work on your muscles, you go to the gym. It's like the same thing. You just go to the specialist and, and you learn from them. And, and I think that it's hopefully we'll see it more and more that way. And, and really, that's what cognitive behavioral therapy is. There are some other tools that I think that we're generalizing therapy here, things like EMDR, things like ketamine that are a little bit different. But but essentially, from the talking perspective, it's yeah. it's huge. And I think, too, what's interesting is when we look at kind of long term, like what makes a good life and what makes a happy life. And we look at the studies that we've done on that. One of my favorite studies are these blue zone studies, and they look at kind of the, these people who lived over 100 and, and were happy and healthy without chronic disease. And we looked at kind of what habits they had in common. And what they found was over sleep, over nutrition, over exercise was a strong sense of community. It was the biggest factor of health. And when we think about healing and wanting to grow through a hard chapter, being able to sit down and talk to somebody and, and connect with them about a challenge in a way that's supportive and they're able to give you you know, tools to, to help work through that has to be one of the most healing things. You know, if, if we know that's one of the most, the, the pieces that really pulls people into these long, healthy lifestyles, I just, I just think that we underemphasize the importance of it in medicine right now. I would agree. And in society, we're, we're lacking community, like you said, I feel. Because I have a lot of clients that come to me and they're, that's just what they're looking for, is I need somebody to be in a community with, to share with. And I think that's also why there's a trend for more group therapy is starting to come back a little bit, you know, being in groups that can discuss, you know, certain issues and certain things that you're going through, because we do need that sense of community. 
And I, I'm glad that you said that. It's it's as high up there as nutrition, as exercise. Having that connection is huge, especially for our mental health. And then our mental health affects our physical health. And the, you know, our physical health then affects our mental health. It's a secular event. So yeah, it's a community super important. Yeah, I think I, I learned that one firsthand through experience when there was a kind of a chapter earlier in college where I was not feeling good. And so I did all these like crazy optimal health things, eating a very, very strict diet, you know, working out a lot, really trying to like schedule my times, like meditate and apply all of the knowledge that I, I had learned and, and be really perfect about it. And because of that, I didn't hang out with my friends anymore. I wouldn't eat meals with my family. I really self-isolated trying to optimize my physical health. And it was interesting because it was the time in my life where I probably had the best blood glucose management. I mean, it was like perfect non-diabetic levels, but I was so miserable. And I realized that it's not about being physically perfect. That's not what gets you to that good quality of life, you know, that there's more to the story. And so that's part of why I love these Blue Zone studies with longevity is because it really proved me wrong, you know, that I had tr I tried so long to be perfect about everything and realized, oh, that's that's not what it takes to to feel healthy from the inside. Thank you for sharing that because that that is so on the nose, so on the dot with that. Did you just get to a point where you were like, I'm done, I need to hang out with my friends or how did you transition? You know, it's funny. I think retrospectively, it probably wasn't any one thing. It was these layers that were kind of like the onion analogy of peeling back layers until I got to a place. And, and truthfully, I'm probably peeling them back still now, but I think I, it was, it was small pieces. Like my, my mom has always been my greatest supporter. And so she would call me and do, kind of the opposite of the other kids, I think in college where their, their parents are like, are you studying? Are you in the library? My mom would be like, are you hanging out with your friends? Are you going to go to a party tonight? Like you need to go, you need to get out. And I, I was so the opposite. It was so funny. And I used to think like, oh, like I, I'm just trying so hard to do this other thing. I'm not focused on that right now. But she knew, like intuitively, she knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. And so yeah. that was, she has been a huge help. And oh gosh, I think just so many different, I think truthfully, I probably learned by failing, you know, just going until I hit a wall and said, oh, this doesn't work. Let me try something else. And and it kind of came off in layers. So I can't say that there was any one thing, yeah. but now looking back, it's easy for me to think like, why did that take me so long to figure out, you know? And, and I think it should have probably come to be more naturally. But but I think that's, you know, you live and you learn sometimes. So That's how we learn is through making mistakes. That's how we learn the most is through saying, oh, that didn't work, you know? I mean, that's how you we learn space expedition. You shoot up rockets, they blow up, and you go, huh, now I have a great opportunity to figure out why that rocket didn't work. And then you can reverse engineer it create a better rocket. Yeah. It's the same thing with our who we are in mental health. And and as far as the onion, we're always going to be pulling back layers, right? We're always going to be learning and moving forward. I believe that until the day we're dirt in the ground. It's a journey. It's not like you get to this one spot and you're done. Yeah. You just keep moving forward. You know, I wish we could live this life in reverse with all the knowledge that we get from age and experience. And I wish I could go back to my younger self and say, hey, do this differently. Yeah. But unfortunately, that's just how we learn. Yeah. Learn through making little mistakes. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. I think making little mistakes and I think talking to people, you know, and I think it, it, it's interesting because we live in a world where online we're bombarded by experts for different conditions, you know, and like there's all these courses and programs and, and they can be so good and so helpful. 
But if we listen to those before we listen to our body, sometimes we can get led down the wrong path. I think it's always good to kind of check in with yourself and listen to your own body and your own response to things. You know, not just, I've done it before where I read a study where I was like, oh, this health habit will be great for me. And so I did it a lot. And then I realized, hey, now I don't feel as good and I need to listen to me and, and know that I might not be the statistic for that paper. But I think that, I think that talking yeah. to people helps so much because because we learn faster together, you know? And, and one of the things that's helped me in my life with looking for my purpose is learning from elders. You know, that's something that I think, because we can't live life in reverse, unfortunately. I, th I do think that's kind of a fun thought experiment. But we can call our grandparents and ask them questions. Yeah. And we can, you know, go and learn from people who have worked for, my mom is a social worker in hospice. So sometimes she'll call me and tell me about patients that she'll meet and She'll, she works in kind of South Mississippi where people are really, you know, just economically, they don't have a lot of money. They might be living in a house that's falling apart, but they have, you know, seven cats and they love their neighbors and they are super happy even though they're on hospice. And she, she reminds me of these stories and I think it's so cool that we can learn from each other, you know? And I think, I, I think that that's something that is just as important to lean into as looking at the medical studies and all the data and statistics. Yeah, I think so too. Just learning from each other and people that have already been through it you know that's so important to to pull the information from people that have already been through it and done it before i think is important so we're going to wrap it up but i want to ask you one quick question what would be your one piece of ice that would move the needle the most in your opinion i think the best thing to do is instead of looking for the exact right lifestyle habits in order to kind of put together to have your your best physical health or get the best lab work that you're going for with your illness stop before you do that and sit and think with yourself where it's coming from and don't do those things out of motivation because you don't like where you are it's i think it's easy to motivate ourselves because we don't feel enough you know we're able to say i need to eat perfectly healthy because I'm not enough the way that I am with my lab work where it is or whatever your chronic disease kind of symptom is. And and I think that if we can stop and choose self-love first and choose to say it's okay where I am today and sit in a, a state of acceptance and then make those choices and figure out those things like nutrition and exercise and sleep and, and all the great things that we know from a place of self-love, you will get there so much faster and it's way easier said than done, but I think that is so important is to really look at your motivation for what you're doing to take care of yourself and make sure it's coming from the right place. Once again, thank you for listening to our podcast. And those of you that have taken time to leave reviews and contact us through Instagram, thank you. You can see the show notes at stuckbrainpodcast.com. You can also visit us on Instagram at stuckbrainpodcast and you can leave what topics you want to hear next.